I was speaking at uh, the university the other day with 600 third-year business students, and someone asked me that raw question, which is, would you have been as successful as you are today if you'd had balance in your life relative to your family and, uh, and your friends and your health? And I said to them, let me answer it differently. How much should I spend to buy back the evening where I missed my daughter being awarded VIP for her volleyball team? I missed that because I was working on a deal. How much should I spend to get that hour back? And of course, the answer is rhetorical and that you can't get time back. So I asked the question, you know, I now have enough. I have more than enough doesn't really matter, but come down to defining enough, um, you know, I wish I'd made some different choices when I was younger. So that's the conversation about, you know, the, the hypocrisy sometimes of, you know, we chase wealth to have flexibility, then we have flexibility wishing that uh, we'd had it sooner, and we could have. That's Brett Wilson, the Alberta-based entrepreneur, philanthropist, author, speaker, and former dragon on CBC's Dragon Stand. This is a short podcast, but we covered a ton of ground. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I personally took a lot away from it, and I hope you do too. This is my conversation with Brett Wilson. Brett here. Brett, how are you doing? I'm good, Warren, and yourself? Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate this. You sort of, quote unquote, retired about 10 years ago, and you're still an incredibly busy guy. So um, for the folks who may be familiar with you from your work on on Dragon's Den um, back in the day, what are the things that are keeping you busy these days? What are you focused on? What excites you? Relative to Dragon's Den, well... I criticize the show for its theatrics, the stupid commentary, the things that don't make sense as a business person, but I celebrate the show much more so for the fact that it planted seeds of entrepreneurship and changed the conversation about entrepreneurship in our country. The idea of a pitch or a dragon's den pitch or a dragon, all of these are part of the lexicon, the conversation about business and the world of business is now recognized to be a lot more than the business students. It's the arts college, it's the engineering schools, the law students, it's the vet med students, it's the kids studying to be welders or painters. The idea that you can be an entrepreneur is a seed that's been planted deeply. And one of my roles in life is to make sure that seed germinates, gets watered, fed, and encouraged. Now, within my own small world, in terms of Dragon's Den, post-Dragon's Den, did 60 deals on air, I closed 30 of them. Of the 30, 10 died within a year. 10 are in what we call the Monty Python phase. I'm not dead yet. Well, you will be. So they're struggling. Um, I reached a deal to sell out my shares of one of them yesterday. I reached a deal last week to gift my shares of one of them back to the, uh, to the entrepreneur. That business wasn't working, bumping along. And so, so we're in cleanup mode, but there's three or four that are absolutely sailing. There's a, an underarm, uh, product called Dr. Mist that, uh, it's private, so I can't give out numbers, but sure. it's uh, doing doing multiples of what it was forecast to do when we first started. So that's been a highly economic transaction. There's a perfume out of Halifax, a girl named woman named Barb Stegman has built an extraordinary brand. The Bay was very supportive, and now she's just launched another product line in Sephora in Canada and in California, and it looks like that's her pivotal moment to the big leagues. Then I've got a group of guys that are partners of mine in uh, Saskatoon, 
and their business is modular construction. They move from repurposing shipping containers into truly building modular and are just killing it, nailing it in a positive way in terms of supplying um, community halls and schools and and uh, head offices for northern communities across Saskatchewan. So they're killing that. But the most impressive business is Rachel, Rachel Milkey, Hilberg and Burke, the jewelry company. Who would have thought that Regina could be a center, a hotbed of jewelry excellence in Canada? But we've got 200 employees, 90% or more are women, and um, we really, she, Rachel, is a big deal. And so I'm pretty proud of those, those pieces as they've come together. They're a distraction from my core businesses of real estate farming and, uh, you know, and hockey and other stuff, but they're a delightful distraction because they're good people and they really are celebrating the spirit of entrepreneurship. So you, uh, you had a bit of a different vibe on the show than a lot of the other dragons. Um, you know, you'd watch the show and you, you seemed to march to your own beat or you had a bit of a different take on things. <laughs> and, and, you know, looking back, I, I did some research and found out about the way you kind of made it to the show because it wasn't really a smooth and, and sort of easy, easy route. And then afterwards, you, you mentioned that you'd uh, closed 30 deals and you put four and a half million dollars of your own money into those yeah. deals. And um, I, I think that there, there's quotes out there saying that a lot of the other dragons are there more to be on TV. And I'm sure they're fine folks, but that a lot of them had put, you know, much, much less of their own dollars into deals than you did. Well, based on what can be tracked, it's hard to find any of the dragons having put up you know, more than, more than a million dollars. And mm-hmm. I, I use that as a very high ceiling relative to what can be seen. And what's interesting is all of the dragons have a social media presence. So there's no reason that they couldn't be supplying that kind of information. I mean, that's Arlene's core business. That's mm-hmm. you know, on and on. So there could be more information. Why isn't there? Well, that, that leads you to wonder. Now, to be fair to the dragons, they are pitched on the opportunity. And this is globally, not just in Canada. Right. They're pitched on the opportunity to come and build their brand, their profile, and do something good for entrepreneurship. They don't ever make a commitment to actually do deals. They make a commitment to have the money. Mm-hmm. So they have an acknowledgement that they have, you know, I had to sign something that said I had at least, I can't remember the number, two hundred or $300,000 available to do deals. Right. And so I didn't mind signing that. Others might have scrambled to sign that in terms of liquidity. You know, it's one thing to have assets. It's another to have cash to actually do deals. Absolutely. So, yeah, there's a there's a bit of a rub there. And I did go on the show to do deals. That was my pitch uh, to the CBC. I actually, in a in an email before going, uh, getting the nod, if you will, I was. They contacted me, and I happened to be in Botswana, Zimbabwe, in Victoria Falls. On a, on a safari vacation with my two daughters. It was four in the morning when uh, Stuart Cox, who was the producer at the time, called me and said, are you still interested? And I'm thinking, geez, this starts in two weeks. And he said, well, Brett, we've narrowed it down to you and one other person. Give us your last pitch. So I created the top 10 reasons to pick Brett. And number four was, I'm told, pivotal. And number four was, takes a combination of balls, brains, and a wallet to do deals. And you appear to be somewhat short of all three on the show at this time. Mm-hmm. And it was meant to be provocative. It was meant to be a dig because it's certainly not to suggest that people didn't have brains, ball or courage sure. or commitment, but 
to push to pitch myself as the outlier in that area that I would come and do deals and I and I did I did exactly what I said I would do and they let me do it so it worked out well for both sides I'm not uh, there's no complaints no no challenges the other dragons chose for the most part not to do their deals I think probably one of the most telling moments was when I saw a book published on how to do deals in Dragon's Den and I'm thinking I didn't get a phone call nothing <laughs> No one asked me for any feedback and I'm reading it and they made it, they referred to me quite often as just the dragon. And then the dragon made this offer or that offer. And because I'd done the vast majority of the deals, they were careful not to name me, but Mm -hmm. that's fine. I knew what the deals were and I'm looking going, just a minute, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. So what I did on air and what I did in reality, two different worlds. Right. So, on air, you have to commit to giving people the amount of money that they came looking for. Right. So I did. But when we started due diligence, if it didn't look like the deal I had done was fair, I certainly had the right to walk away, but so did the other party. They sure. had the right to say, look, we don't want to change the deal. We don't want to continue if it's not exactly. Now, of the, tw- of the tw- well, it was 28 deals that we closed by the time that book came out. So of the 28, I think 24 had changed. They weren't the same as what was on air. And yet the book published with CBC's approval Mm -hmm. was based entirely on what was done on air as if there was no other world. But the world of reality takes over. And that's why I changed the deals so that I could actually get them done. That's great. You know, I've had the misfortune. Two of my partners have since passed away. Um, and one of them, the business wound up when he died. The other had a succession plan in place. So again, these are all ordinary course, real life challenges. And Dragon's Den has done amazing things for Canada in terms of raising the profile of entrepreneurship, certainly raising the profile of the entrepreneurs that were behind them, and certainly raising the profile of the Dragons. And, you know, I get the benefit of, you know, I've got a book that's supposed mm-hmm. to be the best-selling Dragon's Den book. Other dragons have sold more books than me, but I've only got one book. They've got, Kevin has six or seven, Mm -hmm. Arlene has three or four, so whatever. So it's a good-selling book. It's well-received. But the platform for conversation about almost anything, whether it's politics, um, sports, health, uh, mental health, uh, or entrepreneurship, that platform's been extraordinary, and I celebrate that for sure. There's a quote from you that said, my early drive was to be successful based on the measures that I now make fun of, money and power. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, I mean, even the, even the name of my book is meant to drive that point home. So the title of the book is Redefining Success. And when I first pitched the book title to the publisher, the subtitle was Still Making Mistakes. The headline was actually Redefining Success in a wealth obsessed world. Cause I wanted to pay, take that shot at this. You know, when people ask me about, would you have been as successful if you'd done this or this, mm-hmm. they're always asking, would you have made as much, as much money? Right. And so we still have this narrow minded linkage between wealth and success, which is why I talk about a wealth obsessed world, the size of the car, size of the vacation, the size of the house, Um, size of the office, size of the wallet, all of those things are measures of success. My daughter once said, why can't people measure success by the size of the smile? Right. The happiness factor. And then a lot of people will immediately say, well, of course, that's a given. Well, if it was a given, I wouldn't have had to bring it up. Right. You know, we started the conversation about success based on wealth. 
And so I do enjoy some success if you want to call wealth Mm -hmm. all the success that you need. I've had that. Um, But as I said to a kid, I was speaking at uh, the university the other day with 600 third-year business students, and someone asked me that raw question, which is, would you have been as successful as you are today if you'd had balance in your life relative to your family and, uh, and your friends and your health? And I said to them, let me answer it differently. How much should I spend to buy back the evening where I missed my daughter being awarded VIP mm-hmm. for her volleyball team. Right. I missed that because right. I was working on a deal. How much should I spend to get that hour back? Mm-hmm. And of course the answer is rhetorical and that you can't get time back. So I asked the question, you know, I now have enough. I have more than enough. doesn't really matter, but come down to defining enough. Um, you know, I wish, I'd made some different choices when I was younger. So that's the conversation about, you know, the the hypocrisy sometimes of, you know, we chase wealth to have flexibility, then we have flexibility wishing that uh, we'd had it sooner, and we could have. But these are lessons that come, well, to some, they, they never come at all. But to some people, like you went through a period where... Um, you know, working, 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 and 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 putting that building of that wealth and the career first. And I heard that you actually had to go into um, uh, a clinic in Arizona for work addiction. Is that is that correct? No, it's absolutely true. We, um, you know, there was a night I, I literally raged at one of my kids over something relatively innocuous, and it was out of that that I looked at my life and said, you know what, um, that I just I don't want. Um, I don't want to be living this way. I don't want to have this cycle of what we're doing. And um, because it was a negative um, self-harming cycle. And so I took the time to check into an addiction and trauma treatment center to look at how I'd gotten to where I was in life. And it was pretty clear that it was just a set of misguided priorities. I had no interest in having those priorities uh, govern the rest of my life. I had a failed marriage, and so I used that as an excuse to work. Of course, the more I worked, the harder it was on my marriage. I got a feedback loop. So I'm giving a talk in about two months to a group of uh, executives. There, a lot of them have their own businesses. Very successful folks uh, in the sort of traditional terms, from their 40s to their 60s. So these are not people just starting out in their careers. They feel like they've kind of made it, so to speak. But they all feel like there's areas in their life where they can improve a little bit. Can't we all? Um, the big one though was work life balance. And I, I think that that, that maybe not be the right term for, for what I'm talking about here, but I think it speaks to the core of that kind of awakening that you had. What would be the advice that you would give to this group of folks who are uh, workaholics, high functioning, doing really well financially on paper? And, you know, they've got the car, they've got the house, they've got the portfolio, yeah. the vacation home. What would be your advice to those folks? Well, first of all, let me at them. I want to I <laughs> take, take a shot at these, these folks because this is the sweet spot of where I do enjoy these kind of conversations. I guess, I mean, the core of it goes back to, you call it the book, Redefining Success. So I would challenge people, first of all, let's measure success. Let's look at the metrics. Is it wealth? Is it time off? Is it relationships? Is it health? Measure, tell me how you would measure success in your life. And is that going to change with time? I mean, it might be that you need to, in your 30s, put a little more effort into wealth because you've got bills to pay. 
Um, but by the time you're in your 50s and 60s, maybe it's a lot more about the relationships and your health. So it can be a dynamic set of goals around success. So define success, and I would argue redefine success. Mm. And then as an extension of once you've set your definition of success, your priorities should become obvious to you. If your definition of success is wealth and only wealth, then don't worry about your health. Really don't bother having kids because you're not going to see them anyway. And your marriage isn't important because you don't really need a wife to make a lot of money. And I'm really obviously being facetious or sarcastic about those comments, but those are work-life cycles that you see happen. People dive into without regard to any form of other elements of success. So in my world, I came to conclude very clearly that regardless of my definition of success, my priority had to be health. My personal, physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual health was core to me being alive. Because mm-hmm. if you're not alive, the rest don't matter. If you're not healthy, it's not fun. So health, that's number one. Number two is family. You may or may not enjoy the family that you're given, but I argue that it's worth a try. And, you know, I've got, I struggle with a relationship with one particular sibling. I have a half sibling who's my best friend. So there's a range of things that happen in, in the world of, of relationships, but family gets first crack. Second would be friends in terms of my priorities. So number one, health, number two, friends, number three, number two, family, number three, friends. And I just keep working my way down. And if you measure your priorities against your success goals, you can find the balance you need. And that's, it seems simple. I wish someone had taken it and put it in metrics like that mm-hmm. for me. And, and that's why sometimes as a, you know, a dragon, I have profile. As an entrepreneur, I have profile. As a father who's made mistakes, I have profile. Um, and I use that profile to challenge people's thinking about why did you agree to do this or why did you not think about doing that mm-hmm. in terms of life and balance. You talk about family, and and you said that your dad was one of your uh, two big mentors. What? And your dad was a used car salesman in Saskatchewan, correct? Um, Absolutely. What, what What do you think are the big things that you took away from him that you still apply today, and that you try to relay to your kids? Well, it took me a long time to appreciate how great a father he was. His commitment to his spouse. Uh, two wives, as it turns out in his life, because mm-hmm. my first mother passed away. My second mother also passed away. But dad was an extraordinary husband. Dad was an extraordinary father. I sometimes judged him harshly because he didn't provide as well as some of the higher profile businessmen in my hometown. But as I came to understand that my priorities were misguided as a result of a warped perception of what was what constitutes success, well, then everything started to come together. Right. And again, I appreciated my father that much more. Dad was a great father and husband. Dad was a great community-minded citizen. And I know from watching him, he was a great friend. Yeah. And those things were priorities. He was a great salesman. I can't tell you how many times he'd sell a car over the phone. <laughs> you know, he'd finish the job. And a car is considered one of the most tactile oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, exercises, but he'd get off the phone and kind of smile and say, yep, they bought one. It's amazing. Or words to that effect. And um, so he'd be his work. <laughs> so every Canadian boy's dream is to play in the NHL. 
And then for 99.9% of us, when we come to the crushing reality that that's not going to happen, the next dream is to own a piece of a team. So you've been a <laughs> part owner of the Nashville Predators for a number of years now. The last figure that I could find is about 12.7%. I, I apologize if that's not correct. Um, you guys had an amazing, amazing Stanley Cup playoff run last year, like two wins away from from hoisting the cup. What's that experience been like? Um, was it everything that you hoped for? Um, and you know, for, for those of us who are not going to realize that, dream someday uh can you just put us in your shoes in terms of what it's like to own a chunk of that team well it's been extraordinary and of course the benefit of hindsight you know i'm delighted i made the decision at the time i made the decision i knew it was a unique opportunity most clubs are held by wealthy families the aquilinis the thompsons the the molsons and or they're owned by large organizations or groups of wealthy individuals um certainly calgary daryl cates in edmonton um you know so the opportunities to buy into these clubs are few and far between the very first night i was in nashville i was down there with a friend of mine who's a musician i was helping them get their career launched in nashville and uh, go to a few meetings and try and learn a bit about the business and the very first night though i went to a business group uh dinner at a business group that i belong to and so i went to the local chapter if you will of this business group and at the dinner party again i'll take a a 10-minute conversation and make it 30 seconds it was so you like hockey you're from canada have you ever owned a piece of a team um you don't like or do like jim balsilli that conversation came up because of the canadian angle in nashville I got that melted down and they said, well, would you be interested in owning a piece of the club, this one individual? And I said, I could be, why? And he said, my family's part of the new ownership group and someone dropped out this morning Mm. from the group. So I was sitting at the table with one of the new owners of a group that had just lost a person. By noon the next day, I'd shook hands on coming in to own, you know, seven or 8% of the club. Mm. And then over time, I did indeed buy my way up to, I guess at the peak, I'm probably in one-eighth of the club, whatever that is right. in terms of units. And um, and it's been an extraordinary run in terms of engagement. You know, we were told I was, you know, politely chastised by friends and family alike. I mean, why Nashville? Why a southern town? Why a city where it doesn't look like they're going to make it? And I said two things. One is come watch and watch me. You know, I, I can add value in terms of marketing, in terms of balance sheet, in terms of choosing people, but I'm not the one to choose the players. I'm not the one to have a hockey strategy, but I was around when we renegotiated David Boyle's contract because he was that good. I was around when we did the trade for Subban. I was around. I mean, the owners are part of all of these things sure. in a small way. But in a big way, we guide the ship, and the ship is very well guided right now. In particular, community engagement. Um, I watch the way the fans come together, the sponsorship comes together. I agreed to take a box in the Predators uh, arena this year. I was told, which size box do you want? Uh, because one has a longer wait list than the other. I'm an owner, and I'm going on the wait list to get a box. So part of me goes, what? And another part of me goes, wow. Hey, that's great. So, yeah, just to go back, it's it's almost surreal to be a part owner of a club, especially a boy from the prairies, North Battleford, Saskatchewan, to have a piece of a club that's a contender. Last year, we were a surprise contender. This year, we are a clear contender. And, um, you know, we surprised a club called Chicago. 
Uh, I'm certainly hoping no, no, no one tries to surprise us the way we surprised Chicago. Right. Well, I know you've got to run. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Best of luck in the playoffs. Best of luck with your family and your businesses, and we'll continue to follow you online. Well, if we can do this again in a year, uh, let us know. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks, Warren. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Just a great guy. I want to say thanks once again to Brett Wilson for making the time to chat, and thank you to you for taking the time to listen. If I could ask you to please just take a second and subscribe to the podcast or leave a review, tell us what you thought about it on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, that will help other people find this content. And keep an eye out, we're going to be giving away some autographed copies of Brett's book over the next couple of weeks, so follow me on Twitter and Instagram and you'll see those offers. Anyway, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.